can be seated. I want to uh, welcome you all here. We're, we're glad that you're here as we're uh, continuing on uh, in our sermon series this morning on uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be in this uh, right up right up until Christmas time. So we're about four or five weeks in. And like I said, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, before I get into today's message, uh, we do uh, want to let you know um, a member of our church uh, passed away this last week, Tom Ryan, and uh, his family attends here. Uh, his daughter, uh, Melissa, uh, is, our, is our church secretary. And so we just wanted to make you aware of it. That funeral is going to be here on Friday at 11 a.m. with a visitation preceding right, right here at the building. And so this is part of what it means uh, to be a family journey together is to, to step in and, and bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, and, and be there for one another. So I want to encourage you, if you can, uh, Sunday uh, a.m. at 11 uh, visitation, one hour preceding. Let me go ahead and pray uh, for Tom's family, for Patty and um, their kids. My Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for the day, and I want to thank you for uh, Tom's life and legacy uh, that is found in his family. And uh, I want to thank you for the example that he set as a worker uh, and as a hard worker. Uh, I want to pray for uh, Patty and uh, their kids that right now you would just be with them and, and your spirit of peace and comfort uh, would be with them as they're grieving and mourning and that we as a church would uh, just step into that space, not shy away from it, step into it and um, offer a word of encouragement, a prayer, and just be there for them as spiritual family does. We again thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You probably uh, feel the same way. I vividly remember uh, where I was when our kids were born. Uh, we adopted our kids, so I understand that uh, if you gave birth naturally, it's like I remember where I was was 40 hours of excruciating pain, right? And that, that was our story. We, we adopted our kids. But I remember uh, for Sam, uh, our son, I was here in the office, and Cheryl called and uh, said that Sam's birth mom had gone into labor and later that he was born. And we probably exchanged a dozen phone calls that morning uh, back and forth just waiting to be able to go to the hospital. Work was an absolute impossible task uh, um, and then finally we were able to drive to Lincoln and, and, and meet him. Uh, Lila, our daughter, um, now that we've gotten to know her over the last five years, this just fits her. She was more of a surprise, uh, a happy surprise, uh, but we uh, knew we had been so chosen by Sam's birth family. We had a heads up on that, um, but the way we found out about Lila is I was putting up Christmas decorations in our front yard. Sam had gone inside because he got cold, and he was warming up in there, and a few minutes later, he came out with a cell phone, my cell phone, and said, Mommy called, and she said she really needs to talk to you. Um, and I said, oh, okay. And that's how we found out Lila was here, all right? And uh, she has been surprising us every day since, all right? <laughs> and you probably are the same way when it comes to good news, right? You remember the phone call uh, that the job came through. You remember the phone call that the home loan was approved. You remember uh, the great news that you were pregnant. We tend to cement those moments into our brain of like, man, I remember this moment of good news, of great news, this life-changing news. I remember exactly some of the, the sights and the sounds and the smells of that moment when I received good news. Now, today is good news spiritually, and I hope I do uh, this text justice. I don't feel like I've been doing these texts justice because they're so good and they're so dense, but I, I hope I do this one justice because it really is good news. But this text, Ephesians and Ephesians, is dense. It is complicated. It is theologically thick. 
all right? And so we're going to wade in it together, but I promise if you'll trust me and we'll walk together, <coughs> excuse me, through this text, this is the best news that I, I could give us this morning, all right? So here's what Paul writes. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God, God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord, and in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the story of the Old Testament, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God building a nation uh, and working through that nation. And that nation is, of course, Israel. They are his chosen people. And along with that storyline of the Old Testament comes several kind of promises. The first is the promise of relationship that repeatedly in the Old Testament, you will see God say to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And you can think about the unbelievable security and joy, hope, and peace that comes from that big idea. God is my father and I am his child. Uh, I grew up the same way my kids are growing up. I had a big dad. Right? My, my dad was 6'3", 300 pounds. He had been a, a golden glove boxer. And I, I knew the security of having a big dad. Right? Whenever anybody was picking on me, it's like, my dad is good, could take your dad out so easily. Right? My, my dad's just bigger than your dad. Right? So you can imagine the security that comes from understanding how big your dad is. Some of you that don't have big dads, you may have experienced this uh, in a pool setting where you, you were told the story, you probably don't remember because you were young enough, but you were standing at the edge of the pool and your mom or your dad, they were begging you and pleading with you to jump in into their arms. And finally, there came a point where you did because they, you knew they loved you and, they, and you knew they'd catch you and you trusted them. This describes God's relationship with Israel. He is instructing them and commanding them and his desire is that they would jump into his arms Trust him, obey him, and follow him. That they, they would do what he said because they knew he loved them. And they, and, and they trusted him and they believed him. And as you read through the Old Testament, the story of Israel is not unlike our story. That sometimes they do that really well. They're on the edge of the pool and they jump into his arms. And they obey and they follow and they find life. And other times, eh, not so well, right? But that is the story of the Old Testament. is the story of this God who has chosen his people, his children. It's the promise of relationship. It's the promise of blessing. 
The promise of blessing goes all the way back to Abraham. We're going to actually look at this text again next week, but let me read it to you. The Lord God had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And as you read through the Old Testament story again, you can see all the ways that God blessed Israel. So many different ways. You can look at the land that he gave them. You can look at their prosperity. You can look at the way the nation grew in population from just a few people to millions. But honestly, the biggest blessing that Israel had was the first point of this, the relationship they had with their God. God was their God and they were his people. And that was the greatest blessing. I think that's a good reminder for us that sometimes we have in mind a blessing that it's going to be economic or familial or health or whatever the case may be. And it's good for us to remember the greatest blessing we have is found in our relationship to God in Christ Jesus, as Paul describes in chapter 1. This text also describes the way blessing would come into the entire world. That God wasn't just blessing Israel, although that's a huge part of his plan. But instead, God wanted to bless the entire world through Israel. And we know that ultimately that is found in Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that a little more next week. But also there's this idea of, hey, whoever blesses you, I will bless So if a nation, a neighboring nation is a blessing to you, or they're kind to you, or they're good to you, Israel, that nation will be blessed in proximity to you. Whoever blesses Abraham, whoever blesses Israel will be blessed. There's also the promise of citizenship. There's entrance into this relationship that Israel had with God. Entrance was pretty simple. You were born into the nation of Israel. It was birth. And then later it was circumcision uh, as the sign of the covenant. You ask your parents about it on the way home. Um, We're not getting into it today, but the covenant that God made with Israel with all of its rights and all of its responsibilities became yours at birth through circumcision. And I think it's important to remember that covenants always come with rights and responsibilities. The responsibilities aren't duty-based. They are based in this deep and abiding love for one another. So if you've been married or or you're thinking about getting married at some point, this is kind of how marriage works. At some point, you stand in a church and you made promises to the person you were marrying and they made promises to you and they weren't really dependent. The promises you made weren't dependent on their promises. That's a contract. A contract says, if you, then I, right? If you'll pay me money, I'll show up to your house and mow your lawn. That's a contract. Covenants are personal. They're based in love. And it says, hey, this is what I will do. This is what I'm promising you I will do. And a husband makes those and a wife makes those. And it's how marriage works. That it's not dependent on what you do. This is what I promise as your spouse I will do. And let me tell you how graceful God is. When Israel didn't live up to their, to their, to their, their side of the covenant, God created a sacrificial system so that their sins could be forgiven and they could continue to be in compliance with their end of the covenant. Isn't that amazing? They could continue to live in blessing. They could continue to live in relationship. They had failed their end of the covenant. And God says, I will make a way for you to remain in compliance with your end of the covenant through grace. And so what this text is getting into, I know that's a long bit of baggage to get to. But what this text is getting to is, we'll throw this on the, on, the slide, on the screen behind me, but what happens if you aren't Jewish? 
right? That all of these promises of relationship and covenant and blessing and prosperity, all that stuff, what happens if you're born and you're not Jewish? People like me and possibly you, that my mom's side of the family, they came over from Germany. My mom's maiden name, I've told you about this before, my mom's maiden name was K-O-E-N-I-G-S-K-N-E-C-H-T. It is pronounced exactly, exactly as it's spelled. I don't know what else to do for you, but it's, it's pronounced Kinnishnik. That was my mom's maiden name. She was so happy to be marrying the Higgs, right? She literally used to sign her name K-13. K-13, 13 letters after K. All right? And so people like me, we came from Germany. On my dad's side, I remember asking my grandpa Higgs, and my grandpa, I know about mom's side of the family. We, we came over from Germany. Uh, I'd like to hear about our, our side of the family. My grandpa always used to say, Steve, all you need to know is we're a bunch of hillbillies from Tennessee. That's the Higgs, right? I always wanted a little bit more, but that's what he said we were, right? Look at the first paragraph d- directed at those who weren't, to those of us who aren't Jewish. So we're Gentiles. He talks about the position we found ourselves in outside of Christ. He said, you are separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship, and foreigners to the covenants. So all of this talk of relationship with God and blessing, these covenants really weren't for you and me. They were for Israel. And the language in the text is really harsh, but it's true. He said the Gentiles were without hope and without God in the world. Without hope and without God. Now, I think it's clear in the Old Testament that God designed a system to make himself known to everyone. He designed a system through the nation of Israel to bring blessing to the entire world. But Paul's point is that the nature of God's relationship to Israel, the covenants and the blessings and the unique relationship, that those things were not available to everyone. They were for Israel. You probably remember as a kid, Maybe as an adult, but especially as a kid, you might remember how exclusion feels. Especially if you're like me. I was not a natural athlete, and I was so much bigger than everyone else. Kickball was a nightmare. Um, Even more than kickball was a nightmare because I couldn't run around. Dodgeball was the worst nightmare in the world. I couldn't dodge jack squat. I was too big. And so they would appoint captains. You remember how this was in gym class. They would appoint captains, and one by one, they would start choosing people. And I'd just be all gangly, big, standing there type of thing. And they'd be picking one person. And then I would be the last one, and they would say, I guess we'll take him. That would be the, the last person picking. I, 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 guess, I guess we'll take him. And what Paul is asking, is that the state of the world? That God has chosen his favorites, And the rest of us, we can know him some, but we can never have the relationship with him that Israel has. We can never have with him the relationship our hearts long for and our spirits need. We can get some spillover blessing, but we can never have the real thing. We can see God at work in the people that are over there, but that's about as close as we can get. Paul says, is that our state as Gentiles? That we can know him some, receive some blessing, walk a little bit closer to him in some ways, but really the unique relationship, the good relationship, the blessed relationship is for Israel. And Paul says, in Christ, the answer to that is no. And Paul will go on to say, that's not even what God was doing long term. You remember that passage from Abraham, that eventually the entire world would be blessed through Abraham, through Israel. That God has been orchestrating, Paul calls it a mystery next week, God has been orchestrating this mystery, this plan 
to bless the entire world, and he does it through Jesus. So what is it exactly that Jesus did? I love how Paul describes it in this text. He says he came preaching peace, but he also came being peace. It's a really beautiful Greek word, and what it describes is an untroubled, undisturbed state of well-being. And in this context, Paul is talking about our relationship to God. He says that in Christ, you and God are at peace because of the work of Christ. You may have had a moment like this in one of your relationships where you're talking with someone and you're interacting with someone and something's off. They're a little bit chippier. They're a little bit cold. They're a little bit distant. Something is off. And you end up sending a text that goes something like this. Hey, this exchange happened and I just want to make sure, are you and I okay? Are you mad at me? Have I offended you? Have I done some? Are we all right? Is everything okay with us? And this is Paul's argument. That a person may read the Old Testament and they think, I'm not Jewish. I'm not part of the chosen people. I'm not, I, I'm not from that tribe. I, I'm not. God, are we okay? God, are we okay? And what Jesus came to do was to bring peace between you and God. That in Christ being born again, you can stand confident in this place because of his grace and because of his sacrifice. You can stand confident in this place and say, yes, God and I are okay. My sins are forgiven. They are washed away by his blood. I am okay with God. He and I are in right standing. You and God are okay because of Christ. And I sense that this is something that we struggle with on a national scale. Whenever an earthquake happens or a natural disaster or, or something happens to an entire, a lot of times we'll be like, man, God is reacting to an entire city in anger. I've heard this a bunch. Or we'll be personally going through something difficult and we'll often think, man, have I like angered God in some way? Is God mad at me? And here's what I want you to know, church. That's not how things work. Why? Because Jesus came to bring peace between us and God. There's peace in Christ. So the reason you don't see God operate in the same way in the New Testament in, in terms of anger and justice is not that he doesn't have those qualities of righteous anger and justice. He does still have those qualities. It's that in Christ, his anger and his justice have been satisfied. So now people are either at peace with God because of Christ or they're being invited to find peace in Christ with God. And things are totally different now. Right now, we are in this era of grace. We are in this era of invitation. We are in this era of pleading to say that either you are in a state of peace with God or you are being invited to find your peace in God. But that old system of, of, of thinking is not the way that God operates in our world anymore. The other part of this peace is between the two groups. He says he came to bring peace between us and God, but he also came to bring, make the two groups one. He came to destroy, he says, the dividing wall of hostility. So any Jewish mindset in the first century that said, man, any Jewish mindset that said Gentiles are not welcomed because they're not Jewish, that should be dismissed. And any Gentile belief that says, man, God is leaving behind Israel in some way should be dismissed. He came to make two groups, one, two different families, one, that's what the gospel does. God loves Jewish people. And God loves Gentiles. And so there should be no hostility. There should only be peace. And when we talk about the two groups, 
Jews and Gentiles, we are talking about the entirety of the world. You can only be one of those two groups, right? Those are the two groups that exist in the world. There's Jews, there's people that were born into that tribe, and there's Gentiles. And so what we see in this text is Jesus is our basis for peace. Because of his love for us, and because of his love for them, we should feel motivated and encouraged to find peace with our common man. This is why you'll sometimes hear me say that we think the solutions to our problems are political. The the solutions to our problems, especially on a global scale, are spiritual. And our greatest prayer is that the nations would find Jesus and find peace. And the dividing wall of hostility that divides us as human beings would fall apart and peace would come to the world. I pray for that, that for the world. I also pray it for America. We are divided right now. I pray it for our church. That the dividing wall between Republicans and Democrats, the dividing wall, the racial dividing wall between whites and blacks, the dividing wall between men and women, the dividing wall between progressives and conservatives, my prayer for our nation is that we would find Christ. And in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility would fall apart and we would find his love and we would be motivated toward joy, hope, and peace. And peace is what would come if we found him. And so the solution to these complex societal problems of division within our country, of uh, generational division between boomers and millennials, or racial division, or uh, uh, division within, uh, within Christianity, the solution to it is not political. It is spiritual. That in Christ, we would find peace. Now he goes on to say number two. They're not all that long. That's the longest one, all right? He set aside, Jesus set aside the laws and regulations. And Jesus had to do this because the Gentiles didn't have all that history that the Jewish people had. And so he he set aside all those laws and regulations so that the Gentiles freely could come to Christ. But he also did it because of our sinful hearts. That Just read the Old Testament. Adherence to the law wasn't working. Not because the law was bad, but because of our hearts. We couldn't obey it fully. Now, you read this text, and it says, he set aside the law with its regulations. It might sound like a contradiction to something Jesus said in the New Testament. Here's what Jesus said. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. (coughs) Excuse me. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul and Jesus making different arguments here. One of my commentators said it really well. He said, the law is abolished and nullified. It is wiped out, canceled, and nailed to the cross. By the shedding of his blood, restated in in this verse as in his flesh, Christ satisfied the penalty of the law on our behalf. When Christ crawled out from the cross, it is finished. He uttered the word that has been found on many, many ancient bill of sale, paid in full. 
I think that's a good explanation for these two texts. That Jesus came and he fulfilled the law perfectly and then he paid the penalty for our imperfection. And I like how Paul says it. He set aside the law in his flesh. So the question is, does the law have no value at all? Should it be set aside in that way? And he says, no. The law has tremendous value to us when you read the Old Testament. It's in the law that we understand the holiness of God. It's in the law that we understand that we are sinful. It's in the law that we understand the best way to live. Many of our American laws are built on the law of Christ. That being said, he satisfied the requirement. And he satisfied the penalty. And he did that for one reason and one reason only. And this is what this whole text is building to. He did it so that we could know the gospel is for everyone. This message of Christ, it is for everyone who desires to receive it. It's not just for the Jew or the Gentile. It's not just for the man or the woman. It's not for the good or the, it, just for the good or the bad, the Republicans or the Democrats. It is available to everyone to Jews and Gentiles, men and women, good and bad, Republicans and Democrats, boomers and millennials, right? It is available to everyone. It is for everyone. And here's what that means according to Paul. All can be forgiven. That if you have this desire to have your sins forgiven, if you've read the Bible and you see this holy, powerful, and awesome God, and you think to yourself, man, my sin is a problem. When I see him and I see me, my sin is a problem. Paul wants you to know that because of Christ, all can be forgiven. All can have access. If there's this thing in you that says, man, I was created to know God and worship God and follow him, I want you to know that in Christ, you can have access to the Father through faith. All can have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who empowers us and helps us in our weakness, the Spirit who gives us joy, hope, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All can have the Holy Spirit. It is for everyone. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is not exactly what Paul was talking about because he wasn't in American culture, but there is a dividing wall of hostility right now in our country that is counter the gospel. Because you will never reach out to someone to share the love of Christ with someone that you hate and that you feel needs to be defeated and that you feel that needs to, 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 to find their place and, and exit left. That this dividing wall of hostility in Christ should fall. And in the gospel and in this room in particular, we adopt this mindset that this is for everyone. Jew and Gentile. Man, Men and women, good and bad, Republicans and it is for everyone. It is available to everyone. And that means the invitation is open to everyone to come and know Christ, to follow him, to have their sins forgiven, and to receive eternal life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And this is an opportunity for us to kind of relish in this moment of truth that this is for everyone. Would you help us right now to feel grateful that first of all, it's for us, for every person in this room wants to, that wants to know you and follow you and give their life to you, this is for them. 
So let us right now just be grateful for that truth. But let's follow it up with an additional truth of if it's, if it's for everyone and it's for me, it's also for the person in the cubicle that is driving me nuts this week. That's right next to me. It's for the family member that I disagree with. It's for the neighbor that is on my last nerve. It is for the person that I interact with at lunch today, the waiter or the waitress. It is for the stranger on the street. It is for everyone. And so may I receive it because it's for me, but may I also share it because it's for everyone. And sometimes, Lord, we can become so self-involved that we lose sight of that that it's for me, but it's also for them. Help us to see it. Help us to live it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together right now, and it's an opportunity, like I said, for us just to thank God for what he has done, that he has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility, and he has made a way for us to know him and worship him, and then also to be motivated that as we leave this place and we go to work tomorrow or school or whatever the case may be, that we would remember that it's for them as well. So our ushers are going to pass out communion. You can just hold it and spend some time with God, thanking him for what he has done, and then I'll come back up in just a minute, and we'll receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, thank you for coming and inviting us. May we see right now in this moment that this is for us. I know that there are people in this room that probably think of themselves as good. And there's people in this room that have an overwhelming sense of their sinfulness and they view themselves as bad. I just want to pray that we would all see that we need your grace. We need your grace. And we want to thank you for inviting us into your family so that we can call you father and you can call us sons and daughters and we can have the relationship with you we're created to have. It's the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Uh, really glad that you were here. We're going to close with a, a final song of worship if you want to stand. Um, and uh, after service here in the overflow area, um, our elders, a couple of our elders are going to be over there and they would love to talk with you and pray with you. If you have any questions about, man, is this is what Steve said this morning true? Is this really for me? They would love to talk to you about that and, and pray with you this morning um, about an invitation to you that exists to come into the family of God and to know him as father. So let's close with one last song. Um, God bless you guys. Have a great week ahead. Give us your heart.